welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Well, let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Well, it looks like today we hit Europe in the mid-1800s. Specifically, we'll be looking at the unification of Italy. Unification? Yeah, hopefully you remember from your history classes that Italy, as a unified country, did not exist until the mid-19th century. Oh, you don't remember that from school? Well then, here's a basic refresher. For our story, we pick up with the Congress of Vienna. This was held in 1814 to 1815 following the defeat of Napoleon. While much was discussed and decided at the Congress, what we're concerned about with is how it reorganized the collection of small independent states on the Italian peninsula. Let's start in the north and work our way southwards. In the northeast we have Lombardy and Venetia. Both were quite wealthy and both were taken by Austria. In the northwest, we have the Kingdom of Sardinia, ruled by an Italian monarch. It was comprised of the island of Sardinia and three areas on the mainland, Piedmont, Nice, and Savoy. Below this, in the north-central part, was Tuscany and three smaller states, Parma, Medina, and Romagna. Continuing southward, the central part around Rome was the Papal States, and obviously ruled by the papacy which considered an independent political existence necessary to carry out its spiritual mission. Finally, to the south of the Papal States was the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. It consisted of the southern part of the peninsula, which was like around Naples, and the island of Sicily itself. This kingdom was ruled by a branch of the Bourbon family. So that's the situation in Italy following the Congress of Vienna. With the exceptions of Lombardy and Venetia, which, as I said, were under Austrian control, the rest of these states did their own thing and had their own rulers. Why would any of them want to give up their own sovereignty to unite together? Good question. And to answer that question, we need to look at one of the driving forces that took hold in Europe as a consequence of the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars. The idea of nationalism. Early advocates of nationalism claimed that each people had their own cultural unity, and this cultural unity was pretty much self-evident. It manifested itself in things such as having, say, a common language, a common ethnic ancestry, uh, maybe a shared history, a shared religion, and or a certain territory seen as that particular group's land. Now the thing is that when you look at Europe in the first half of the 1800s, such a cultural unity is more of a fantasy than a reality, as far as most nationalities were concerned. And since we're talking about Italy, let's take them as an example. A common language? There were many different Italian dialects, and oftentimes people from one state had trouble understanding each other. A shared history? In the case of the Italian states, this would divide rather than unify, as many of the states had slugged it out with each other over the years. 
And don't forget that in many states, we have multiple ethnic groups sharing the same land. Perhaps to a lesser extent in the Italian states than in other parts of Europe, but it's still there. So wait, if cultural unity really didn't exist, how is nationalism going to play a role in driving Italian unification? Well, here's the cool thing about this. It doesn't matter if there, in fact, was not a cultural unity. What matters is that the people involved perceive there to be one. In other words, if you think there's cultural unity, then there is. And the time is going to come when the Italian states seek to turn this perceived cultural unity into a political reality. All right, so let's get things going. Between the Congress of Vienna in 1815 and the European-wide revolutions of 1848, many Italian nationalists dreamed of a unified Italy. And as the years went by and things played out, there came to be three basic approaches to make this happen. The first was the radical program of the very highly idealistic Italian patriot Giuseppe Mazzini and his group Young Italy. He wanted to create a centralized democratic republic based on universal male suffrage and the will of the people. He made a move to do this during the craziness of the revolutions of 1848 and even took Rome, establishing a short-lived republic. Of course, the revolutions of 1848 failed in the Italian states, as they did in most other places in Europe. His brand of democratic republicanism seemed far too liberal to attract even the liberal-leaning middle classes. And Mazzini and his followers ended up being driven into exile anyways. The second approach to unification was championed by a Catholic priest named Vincenzo Gioberti. He proposed that the existing states form a federation under the presidency of a progressive-minded pope. In 1846, Pius IX became pope, and was cautiously supportive of this idea, at least initially. But when the revolutions of 1848 happened, he was temporarily driven out of Rome. After that, he became quite the reactionary toward unification and strongly opposed it. With that idea off the table, that leaves us with a third approach. It involves one of the stronger kingdoms rising up and leading unification. That's certainly the most practical approach, but it begs the question, how much would the urban middle class and the working classes support this? You see, any of the strong kingdoms that would do this had conservative, autocratic governments. The middle class at this time were progressive-minded and liberal-leaning, as were the working classes, some of whom even supported more radical ideas. Again, the revolutions of 1848 came into play. The revolutionaries in Sardinia forced the conservative king Charles Albert to grant a liberal constitution in March of 1848. This constitution granted numerous civil liberties to the people and established a parliament with real legislative powers headed by a prime minister. Deputies to this parliament would be elected by the people, though suffrage would be limited to males who made above a certain income. The king would retain executive powers and have veto power as well. Now here's where things get interesting. Charles Albert had granted this constitution under duress during the revolution. 
when the revolution was put down, many assumed things would go back to how they were. But in 1849, Charles abdicated the throne, and his son became King Victor Emmanuel II. And rather than rescind the liberal constitution, Victor Emmanuel looked at it and was like, hey, these are some pretty good ideas. Let's keep them. Consequently, Sardinia was seen as liberal and progressive by the middle and working classes and won their support, while maintaining support of the upper class conservatives due to it still being a strong monarchy. It was seen as the Italian state most ideally suited to lead unification. At the same time, Victor Emmanuel in Sardinia had the great fortune of having a brilliant statesman as prime minister, Count Camillo Benso di Cavour. Not only was he highly experienced in politics, he also was the personification of that alliance that had formed between the aristocracy and middle classes. He came from a noble family, hence the title Count, but at the same time embraced the economic doctrines and business practices of the prosperous middle class. Before entering politics, he had made quite a fortune in steamships, sugar mills, banking, and railroads. Victor Emmanuel will trust him implicitly and basically give him free reign in improving Sardinia. You see, at this time, and all the way up to 1859, the goals of Cavour and the king were limited and realistic. They simply wanted to unify the states of northern Italy and maybe some in the central part into a greatly expanded kingdom of Sardinia. It's only going to be after 1859 when they look at each other and are like, hey, we got a chance to unify this whole thing. To meet their initial goals, Cavour spent the 1850s working to consolidate Sardinia's strength to make them capable of leading northern Italy. He promoted the construction of highways and railroads to facilitate moving manufactured goods. This, in turn, brought in more tax money that the government could spend building up the Sardinian military. On top of this, he continued to promote civil liberties and the strong liberal constitutional government. This caused many Italian nationalists throughout northern Italy to want to support them if the time for unification should ever come. While this was happening, Cavour also realized that no matter how strong the Sardinian army became, it would never be able to go toe-to-toe with any of the great powers of Europe. This presented a problem, because if Sardinia wanted Lombardy and Venetia, they would need to drive out the Austrians. Cavour's simple solution? Make an alliance with another one of the great powers and have them help to fight Austria. Cavour entered into secret negotiations with French Emperor Napoleon III. Let's face it, the French and the Austrians had never gotten along, so Napoleon III was eager for any excuse to go after him. Thus, a secret alliance was forged in July of 1858. So now that he has France on his side, Cavour set to provoking war with Austria. He did this by holding military maneuvers that the Austrians found pretty threatening. So in April of 1859, they declared war on Sardinia. The Austrian army had vastly superior numbers, like double the size of the Sardinian one. So they expected an easy win. 
even when it became evident to them that France was allied with Sardinia, they still believed a quick victory was possible. Their strategy was simply to knock out Sardinia before French reinforcements could arrive. Unfortunately for the Austrians, their numerical strength was negated by truly poor leadership. The Austrian general officers had been appointed based on birth and not on competency. As a result, it took the Austrian army almost 10 days to march just 50 miles into Sardinia. Forget about a quick victory. In that time, French reinforcements were able to arrive. The Austrians retreated. Going on the offensive, Franco-Sardinian forces would defeat the Austrians in battle, pushing them back into Lombardy, while Italian volunteers there also contributed. By this point it was mid-July, and none of the combatants really wanted another pitched battle. So the armistice of Villafranca was signed, ending hostilities. And it was here at Villafranca that Napoleon III sold out the Sardinians and made a separate backroom deal with Austria. You see, Napoleon III began to grow nervous about having such a strong Sardinia on his southern border. On top of that, many devout French Catholics were increasingly critical of him for supporting Sardinia. Remember, the Pope was big time against nationalism, so Sardinia was seen as an enemy of the papacy. The deal Napoleon III made with Austria gave Lombardy to Sardinia, but not Venetia. Cavour was furious and resigned in a rage. But all was not lost. As the war with Austria played out in the north, pro-Sardinian nationalists in some of those smaller states instigated revolts and easily drove out the ruling princes of Parma, Modena, and Tuscany. The middle-class nationalist leaders who took control of these areas immediately asked to join Sardinia. Now, this was not at all what France wanted, because it, too, would make Sardinia stronger than they'd like them to be. But in early 1860, Cavour came back on the job as prime minister and did a quick deal with France. Sardinia would give Nice and Savoy to France in exchange for France's support of the central states joining Sardinia. Napoleon III agreed, and a plebiscite, that's a direct vote of the people, by the way, was held in central Italy, in which the people voted overwhelmingly to join Sardinia. So the original goal of Cavour was realized. Sardinia was greatly expanded, and with the exception of Venetia, controlled all of northern Italy. It was at this point that Cavour and King Victor Emmanuel realized that maybe uniting all the country was possible. But to do that, the southern part of Italy would have to come under their control. Enter the super patriot Giuseppe Garibaldi. Garibaldi was certainly a character, and tales of his life would certainly fill a number of these episodes of mine. So let's just stick with what he's doing at this time. Garibaldi had led volunteers against Austria in Lombardy in 1859, and by 1860 he was kind of an independent political force, even having his own army called the Red Shirts. And yeah, they were called that because they wore red shirts. Garibaldi's plan was to head south and, as he put it, 
liberate the kingdom of the two Sicilies. Now, partly to use him and partly to get rid of him, Cavour secretly helped finance this mission. In May of 1860, Garibaldi and his red shirts, which numbered about a thousand, landed in Sicily. The swashbuckling Garibaldi won the imagination of the Sicilian peasantry. And as his army outwitted and outfought the 20,000-man royal army, volunteers flocked to his banner. By the time he took Palermo, estimates put his army of volunteers at perhaps as many as 25,000. From Sicily, Garibaldi and his troops crossed into mainland Italy and took Naples. From there, the red shirts geared up to move northward to attack Rome and the Pope. Now Cavour had been following the situation and had anticipated Garibaldi wanting to do this. He sent Sardinian forces to occupy most of the Papal States, but not Rome, and to intercept Garibaldi. Cavour knew that an attack on the Pope would cause France to step in to protect him, and the last thing they needed was a war with France. On top of this, he also feared Garibaldi's radicalism and popular appeal. Cavour and King Victor Emmanuel traveled to Naples to meet up with Garibaldi. Despite the urging from some radical supporters, Garibaldi, being the true patriot that he was, agreed to step aside. A plebiscite was held, and the people of the South voted to join Sardinia. Ah, happy time. Cavour succeeded, and we have a unified Italy. Now, of course, Italy didn't have Venetia, which was still held by Austria, or Rome, which was under the protection of French troops. But Victor Emmanuel knew he'd have to be patient and wait his opportunity to add them to Italy. In 1866, Austria and Prussia went to war. This was called the Seven Weeks War. Italy allied themselves with Prussia, and when Austria was defeated, Italy received Venetia. In 1870, war broke out between Prussia and France, the famous Franco-Prussian War. French Emperor Napoleon III, in desperate need of troops, withdrew his forces from Rome, and Italy moved right in. So as I said, a unified Italy. On paper it looks good. A constitutional monarchy under Victor Emmanuel. In essence, the Italian constitution was basically the Sardinian one being reused. The government was liberal-leaning, yet at the same time not too radical or democratic. Yeah, on paper it looks good, but in reality, they still have a long way to go. There was a clear divide between the propertied classes and the common people, and there was a growing social and cultural gap separating the progressive, industrializing North from the highly agrarian South. Italy will have to deal with these and many other issues in the coming years, but talking about that, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends. And hey, check out some of my other episodes. You might like those as well. I very much look forward to talking with you again next week.